eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Let's go ahead and pray together. I'm going to preach tonight on this particular title, The Effects of Sin on a Broken World. Lord, I pray that you just help us now in this time. Thank you for the word of God, how precious the Bible is. In it, we read even of sorrow, of great effects of sin, and the things that take place in this world. But Lord, the Bible is true and accurate in everything it tells us. And I pray that tonight, as we talk about this particular passage of Scripture, may you truly open our eyes and help us to see what we need to see and understand what we need to. And may we apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Genesis, as we've alluded to in our study already, is a book about the beginning of things. In fact, the very word Genesis literally means origin, root, beginning, or a start, if you will. And it's interesting that the very first words that are used in the book of Genesis actually form the theme for and the title of our series that we're doing in the beginning. And when we say that the book of Genesis really is a book about the beginning of things, we mean that it's not just a book about the beginning of creation. Because sometimes very simply we say, well, yes, Genesis is where God created man. Genesis is where God created the world and everything that is in there. But I want you to note that there are many other beginnings in the book of Genesis. In other words, there's a beginning of God's dealings with man, the covenant that God made with man. There's the beginnings of what we saw a few weeks ago of marriage. A couple weeks ago, we saw the beginning of sin. And as we continue to move through the book of Genesis, we're going to find that it is divided into sections and that there's the beginnings of and the progression of certain family histories. The family of Abraham, the family of Isaac, the family of Jacob and of Joseph. And so, yes, the book of Genesis is a book about the beginning of things, not just of creation, but of many different things, and we find this book of beginnings all through the book of Genesis. And I think it's important for us to recognize that the beginning of something is described right here in the text that we read. 
It's almost like if we were to take and read from Genesis 1-1 and go right to the end of chapter number 3, we would see right there in verse 14 and 15 this transition. Something that was part of the world that God had created and begun, all of a sudden now is turned upside down, if you will. What came from the hand of God, a world that was good and upright and pure, is now something that is tainted by sin and all of its effects. And what we read in this passage of Scripture in our text is really a description of the world as it now is. You see, the world that God created is not the same world, in essence, that you and I live in. Oh, yes, we have all the same things that we see that God created. We have the same sun that God created back then. The moon, the stars, the the trees, and all those things. We see all that. It is the same world, but I want you to know something, that it is qualitatively different. It's a different world that we live in. Yes, it's the same physical world, but it is a world that is substantially different from what came from the hand of God because today we're living in a fallen, a sinful world, a world that is, and it's used this word in the text, a world that is now under the curse of God because of our rebellion. Now note this distinction. Genesis chapter 1 beginning of God's creation. Genesis chapter 2, God's dealings, the beginning of God's dealings with man. Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of sin and its effects on the world. And I'm afraid that far too many people don't recognize the distinction of those chapters. They ignore, if you will, the beginning of sin and the misery that is so clearly described in Genesis chapter 3 of our text here. It's no wonder if people ignore that, that they're confused, if you will, when they look out into the world and they wonder, well, why is there so much sin and why is there so much misery out there? Why are there so many problems in this world? It must be that God, has, and why is it that we all of a sudden blame God for all these things? I want to tell you something. What we read in Genesis chapter 3 is because of the rebellion of man. It is the sin of man that now changed this world that we live in that characterizes it as a fallen world and a world that is now characterized by death, which is the result of sin. So the transition from the world in its good and upright state to the world that is now sinful and in a cursed state is what we see here in Genesis chapter 3. And what I'd like to do is just explore this text for a moment and see the effects of sin on a broken world. A few things I'm going to throw out to you. First of all, its effects on the relationship of all mankind. Its its effects on the relationship of all mankind. Now, I want you to note something here. Look at the first verses that are given here in verse number 14. Here's God speaking to the serpent, giving the curse here to the serpent. And then in verse number 15, talking here about the enmity between that serpent and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. 
And this passage of Scripture shows us here how Satan was cursed more than any other thing in all of God's creation. Satan had rebelled against his Maker, and please be reminded, Satan may be the God of this world, small g, but he doesn't have any more power of God than God because he was created by God. But he rebelled against his Maker. He was barred from heaven and therefore bound to this earth. And what did he do in the message that we saw a couple weeks ago? He came and he figured, well, if I can't have what I was looking for, I'm going to do everything that I can to have it here. And he began to throw out these temptations to Adam and Eve, and they took a hold of it. And now all of a sudden we see all of these problems that come about. And what's amazing to me is what is described in this verse is that there is a problem now within the human race. And what we're going to find in the chapters and the books preceding after this will be that there will be children of the evil one and there will be children of God. Verse number 15, notice those words, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Now, this passage of Scripture is not only talking about the strife that exists between women and snakes. Now, how many of you women are afraid of snakes? Raise your hand if you're willing to admit it. All right. And some of the men probably would raise their hand too. Okay, I understand that. But this is greater than just snakes and mankind or women. This has to do with the strife and the division and the problems that those of those who are going to associate with Satan and those that are going to associate with God by faith. Let me give you a verse just to kind of back up what I'm talking. You remember in John chapter 8 where Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and he made this little statement. He said, ye are of your father, the devil. Pretty amazing. I mean, here's religious leaders that you would have thought, if maybe if some of us had lived there, we would have thought to ourselves, man, these people are pretty important. I mean, look at the way they dress. Look at how they act. Look at what they, listen to what they know about the Scriptures. But these people may have had everything on the outside going for them, but I'm telling you, the inside, as Jesus said, was like these tombstones, if you will. They were full of dead man's bones. They had nothing in regards to a relationship with God. And what we're going to find in the Scriptures is this division now in mankind. God created Adam and Eve, brought them together in this beautiful, holy matrimony. There was to be peace and harmony and togetherness as they served the Lord. But now sin came in and a division happened. Not what we see between Adam and Eve, but we'll go to chapter 4 and what do we find? Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel, and there's division between two of them. One, we might say, Cain, the children, a child of the devil, and Abel, the child of God. And the child of the devil, because he hates the child of God, what does he do? He comes in and he kills him. Can I say to you that we live in a world today where we're facing that division? Go out and share the gospel in a public square. 
and see how many people really love you. Stand up for what is right and true according to the principles of the Word of God and see how many people may want to attack you. I believe that more and more in this day, we are going to find greater attacks upon Christians, upon Christianity, and upon churches, not because they think we're just mean people, but because who we associate with, and that is Jesus Christ. Did not Jesus say, look, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Now, I'll be honest with you, I read those passages of Scripture and I say to myself, oh, come on, Jesus. I mean, we here at Calvary Baptist Church, we're nice people. We don't want to hurt anybody. We don't really want to to, uh, 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 be destructive to people. But I'm telling you what, they hate this book. They hate the message that we preach. They hate the Jesus that we serve. And so the effects of sin on the world in Genesis chapter 3 is that now mankind becomes divided. And there are those that are the child of the devil, and there are those that by faith are the children of God. Tonight, are you a child of God? If you're a child of God, I want to tell you something. Serve God with all your heart. Give everything you have to Him. You say, well, it's hard to serve God in this world. I know it is. I know it's hard to serve God, and I know there's going to be attacks verbally and otherwise against you because of what you stand for. But regardless, it is well worth serving Jesus. Because someday I'll stand there where all persecution will be ceased, and I'll stand before my Lord and Maker and answer for how I live for Him. So I'm here to tell you tonight that one of the effects of sin has to do with its, the relationship of all mankind. But now I want you to notice number two, its effects here next. Go ahead. Its effects on man's dominion over the animals. And hold on just a second. I'm just, uh, oh, there we go. Wonderful. Hold on one second. I'm just a little behind on my notes. All right, I want you to notice this. It's effects on man's dominion over animals. Notice now as we dive further in this passage, we see that God addresses each of the characters in the story. And He pronounces a curse or a sentence upon them. Each of them, the serpent, Adam, and Eve, had sinned against God, and God announced to them what the ramifications of their sin would be. And how amazing it is that God begins with the serpent. When God came down after Adam and Eve's sin, who did God call out for? Adam. And he spoke to Adam and he spoke to Eve. But now when he begins to pronounce the curses, who does he start with? Verse number 14, he begins speaking to the serpent and brings the curse there. Then Eve, and then he begins here with Adam. But I want you to notice here, if we're going to interpret here this whole text, it is important that we understand that there are a couple layers of meaning here that are given. In other words, when we look at the curse that is given in verses 14 to 15, as God begins to talk to the serpent, I want you to notice here, he's talking first and foremost to the serpent, the, the, that creature whom Satan had embodied. 
And the question really that people ask is, well, who is God cursing? Is God cursing the snake that was used as an instrument to bring that temptation to Eve? Or did God curse all snakes? Or does God just simply curse Satan? And may I say that the answer to all those questions is yes. God cursed that particular serpent. God cursed all the snakes. And God was putting a curse upon Satan. Notice here what the Lord spoke to that particular servant in verse 14. Let me read it again. Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. Every bit of every animal, every livestock, every beast of the field, you're cursed above that. That snake now, and all snakes, would now crawl on their belly and would eat dust, if you will. Some have wondered, well, what was the snake like when it appeared to Eve? The Bible doesn't really tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us whether that snake had legs or not. The Bible doesn't tell us how that snake moved along. It seemed to indicate that this snake probably was a little bit more upright. Maybe they moved about with their heads lifted high, possibly almost looking proud, if you will. But now this serpent, having been used as a creature for temptation, is now bound to crawl upon the earth with its head low to swallow dust. The curse is very fitting. But notice here this effect upon the animals. Every other creature is affected. He says here, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field, indicating that it's not just that one snake, not just all snakes, but all creatures are affected. So its effects on the creatures that are here. Number three, I want you to notice this. It's effects on the home. It's effects on the home. Now, God here is talking in verse number 16, unto the woman, he said, but he's not just talking to Eve. This has an effect on all women. And I want you to note a couple of things about this. First of all, God tells Eve that there would be pain in the process of giving birth. And all ladies who gave birth would say, that was a little weak, but that's okay, whatever. (laughs) Certainly, the labor pains that women experience when giving birth would be severe. It would be something arduous. Eve, yes, was created with the ability to give birth, but now the process was going to be hard and would involve pain. A joyous gift, a wonderful gift, every child that is born is a beautiful miracle that God gives. But it would come with great sorrow and great pain. But second thing in the home is not just this aspect of that the giving of birth would involve pain, but I want you to notice that the relationship between the wife and the husband would be marked by sorrow. Notice the end of verse number 16. Here he tells the woman, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, if you've been here for our series earlier on, and we talked about God bringing Adam and Eve to one another and performing that first wedding for these two first created individuals, he created woman to be 
and function as a helper to man. But how interesting here that we're going to notice here that the effects of sin on the home and the relationship of husband and wife very particular is that Eve now, because of eating of this fruit, is going to have a desire to now say, you know what, I don't want to follow. I'm going to want to control this aspect. Instead of living in loving submission to her husband, and instead of the husband's providing that loving leadership, that husband is going to come now in a fleshly way to dominate, and that woman is going to go ahead and rebel against that, and it's going to cause division. What God created that was perfect and beautiful and right, what does sin do? Sin now causes them to look at one another in the flesh and to fight against each other and to not observe the roles that God has given Now notice its effect on work. I'm just moving through these. I'm I'm not taking a lot of time extensively. But verses 17 to 19, its effects on work. The judgments that are pronounced now on man, beginning in verse number 17, they're stated last, and really they're the most crucial, the most extensive. The root of Adam's sin was twofold. Notice what he says to him. First of all, Adam... You listened to your wife when you should have stood up for what was right. Secondly, you ate of the fruit. And therefore, God's judgment comes upon mankind in the fact that he ate of the fruit. One particular commentator said about this verse, and I want to read this, and I quote, The toil that now lies behind the preparation of every meal is a reminder of the fall and is made the more painful by the memory of the ready supply of food within the garden. Now today, we don't see a whole lot in regards to this sorrow. Our sorrow is we can't find a parking place at Publix find our food. Our sorrow is they don't have the particular meat that I like. That's our sorrow. But Joe, you go back a couple hundred years ago when everybody was farming and you were dependent on the rain. You were dependent on certain things to come through for you in gardening so you could have food. There are great historical records given of people who first came to this country that died out because of starvation, because of weather, and various other things, and they realize that the curse upon the ground is something that is real. The ground is cursed. Land that was blessed by God, that would be well watered and fertile. You read about how God had planted them in this particular garden, and these four rivers are coming in, and it just seems to be a lush, beautiful place. Now it's cursed because of sin. And the work now also would be difficult. Now, I've said this on a few occasions, and I hope you get this. Work in itself is not a punishment. It's the difficulty of work. It's the frustration that is associated with work as a result of the fall. And man would engage in this kind of work until he would return to the ground. 
going back to the dust. Now, let me give you number five, its effects on the duration of life. In the fallen world, life will be marked by a futility, if you will. Work will be difficult, it will be frustrating, but the guarantee of death means that all the toil and pain experienced in this life sometimes will make life seem meaningless. It'll make life seem vain. You ever talk to people who don't know Jesus Christ and they say something of this effect? Now, what's the big deal? You live all these years, you work, who cares? I mean, just life seems so empty. How amazing it is when people have lived for everything in this world and they put everything in the basket of life and they've tried to draw out and they get to the end of life and they think to themselves, it's meaningless. In fact, you read the book of Ecclesiastes. I, I'm not going to turn there tonight, but Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, the, the writer Solomon he begins to share about all the things that he's accumulated in this life, and he realizes, and he uses this phrase, vanity of vanities. The word vanity means it's empty. It's something that is devoid of, of, of any value. Solomon begins to share about the vanity of life, and I want to say that those that are apart from Jesus Christ, all they find in this life is vanity of vanities. Those who know Jesus Christ... Sure, life is hard, work is hard, the ground is cursed, and we find all sorts of problems, but that's why when we come to church, we sing about Jesus and heaven and all these things, because someday we're going to be released from all this, and we'll be with God forever in a place where the curse is gone. Boy, that would be beautiful. be beautiful. Lastly, notice this. It's effects on man's relationship with God. Now, I want to look at this in a couple of ways, and I want you to notice, first of all, it is seen in the fact that temptation now becomes a part of this life. Satan, as you read through the Scriptures, is going to continue his work and has continued to this day in getting mankind to not be dependent upon God, but to be dependent upon himself. And all through the Bible, every sin has written behind it a temptation that has come along. What does James talk about? James talks about that sin, when it has come forth because people are drawn away of their own lust. They're tempted, and therefore they say, yeah, I want that. I've got to have that. And they give into it, and they commit sin. But I want you to notice something else here. It is seen here, the effect of man's relationship with God, not only in the fact that Satan is going to continually tempt him to get him away from God, not dependent upon God, but look at verse 22. Notice what is written here. God said something interesting. He said, behold, the man is become as one of us. Now, there was some truth really in what Satan had said to them, and they knew good, but now they understand evil. And God says, if he puts forth his hands and takes of the tree of life, he's going to eat it, and he's going to live forever. And what does God do? He sends Adam and Eve forth 
from the garden. I was reading this passage again this week on a number of occasions, and I thought about that scenario. I don't know how long Adam and Eve had in the garden. The Bible doesn't say. But imagine being banished from that garden. Imagine God telling them, you got to go. You can't stay here. It's not suited for you any longer. And as they're brought out of this beautiful place, and I almost envision that there's a difference between that lush area and where they're now going to, and they come out and they begin to turn around and think to themselves, no longer can I go there. Because now God establishes here a cherub, a particular angel, that stands there with a flaming sword to make sure that they do not enter. How amazing. They're being kept out of a place that they had once started in. It's quite interesting to me that since Adam could not say no to an angel and drive him from the garden... There was an angel that was set up to say no to Adam and keep him from the garden. Now you say, preacher, why did they have to be released from there? Well, God said it. God basically said that if Adam and Eve, if they in their fallen condition would have eaten from the tree of life, they would have lived forever in their sins. In essence, they would have become like the angels that are forever in their guilt and the penalty of sin. And God said, I'm going to take you out of the garden so you don't partake of that tree any longer. And we note that there is a mention of the tree of life in the book of Revelation. We find in that beautiful city of God that that tree is planted right in the center there and its leaves overflowing the river and everyone who takes it now will partake of that and will have that eternal life that God has given. Beautiful. Probably until the flood, man knew where that garden was. Boy, I think Adam and Eve probably taken their sons grandchildren, future generations, and telling them the story. There was a time we lived in there. Every day God walked with us. We spent time with Him. We gave in to temptation. We committed a sin, disobeyed God. Now we cannot enjoy that. And yes, we have fellowship with God, but boy, Life is different than it was in the garden. Boy, what a powerful illustration. But I give one last thing here, and I save the best for last, and that is God gives a plan to be rescued. Look at verse number 15. I skipped over some of this. He says here, the serpent, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. What a fascinating verse. What a, what a perplexing verse, if you will. Remember now, this is in the context of God giving this curse to Satan. And you say, well, preacher, what does this mean? Well, in one sense, there is, as I mentioned at one of the first points, there is this ongoing hostility and enmity between Satan and the human race. But in this, God gives this very hopeful tone 
in a proclamation here. And God is literally saying that there's one that will come from Eve who will eventually destroy Satan and his works. And notice what is mentioned here in this essence of the blows that are struck. There is one blow that is struck by the serpent and one by the seed of the woman. Now it's interesting here, the word bruised is used by both. Both of them are bruised, but the location of the bruise actually determines the severity of the attack. Notice here, the serpent, he's in the last phrase, he's referenced as thou. Thou shalt bruise his heel. Whose? That's the heel of Jesus. When did that happen? How did Jesus die? He died on the cross. His hands were pierced. His feet were pierced. Or can I use the word bruised? I'm sure that Satan, when Jesus was on the cross, when Jesus had given his last breath, I'm sure Satan thought, I finally have won. Story wasn't over. Because now Jesus who is the seed of the woman, that is referenced here as it shall bruise thy head. That is a death blow to Satan. Listen to what the New Testament says, Romans 16, 20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And when you read the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation culminates when Jesus in Revelation 19 comes to this earth and establishes His kingdom. And His kingdom will be full of righteousness because Satan will be banished. Yes, He'll come back after a thousand years, but finally He'll be cast forever into the lake of fire. And He'll be done. It'll be over. Now, tonight I want to close with this aspect, and I want you to note that really this passage of Scripture, particularly verse number 15, has often been referred to as the first mention of the gospel. The first mention. Here in Genesis chapter 3, we read about the curse, and we do this. Oh, no. But within the curse, God gives some hope. God says there's an answer to all this. Yes, death will come upon you. Yes, life on this earth will be hard. But I'm going to give you a chance where you can live with me forever. The beauty of the gospel is that while this ultimate defeat of Satan will not come until the return of Christ... Now, even now, we realize that the power of the devil, yes, it's been broken. Christ moves in the lives of His children. Every one of you that has accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, yes, you understand the effects of the fall, but I want to tell you something. When you are in Jesus Christ, you now, you may have lived in this cursed world, but you have eternal life in Jesus Christ. You have a restored relationship with God from which you've been estranged. You have meaningful relationships now in this world. You have marriages that don't need to be 
filled with strife. You have joy in the midst of work. That's what God's done when He saved you. He's given you such hope. But please notice two last things that are very important in the way that this victory is attained. How is it that I have this hope? How is it that I can have this sureness to know that Jesus Christ is the victor in my life and that someday I'll have the power over that curse through Jesus Christ? Well, I want you to understand that you have to realize that for you to attain it, you cannot get it your way. Remember what Adam and Eve did when they had sinned and they realized they were naked? They quickly went out, grabbed any type of leaves. I'm sure they got poison ivy. I don't know if poison ivy was there, but I'm sure they got all sorts of things. Covered themselves up and thought to themselves, okay, now when God comes around and we think the coast is clear, we can now present ourselves to God. But guess what happened? They were taking care of their shame and their guilt and their sin on their terms they worked for themselves to cover it but what does God do God initiated the way to be right with him look at this verse here in verse number 21 unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make notice here coats of skins and clothe them. You know what God did? He had an animal slain. Now imagine, this is the first time in Adam's Eve, in Adam and Eve's existence that they experienced death. But why was this important? What was the lesson? There was a truth that God was bringing through to them. That blood must be shed to pay for sin. And as you walk all the way through the Old Testament, when Israel is established as nation and they have their worship before God, God gives all of these things about animals being sacrificed. What type of animal? What is to be done with the blood? The blood is to be shed. And everything points to Jesus Christ, who eventually, as John the Baptist noted, when Jesus began His earthly ministry, He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So you know what's going to happen? If you want this hope in Jesus Christ, if you want to know that you'll have the ultimate victory over this cursed world, you cannot come to God on your terms. You have to accept the way God's provided for you. It's as simple as that. But second thing to note, the only way it's going to come to you is you've got to have faith in God's way. Look with me at verse number 20. Very interesting. The Bible says, And Adam called his wife's name Eve. Does anybody notice anything particular about that phrase? It's the first time in the three chapters the name is given. Eve. You know what I believe happened here? Eve, as is quoted in the next phrase, Eve literally means Mother of all living. And Adam 
just simply referred to her as woman, if you will, not anything in a derogatory way. But her name being given as Eve, it was Adam's way of saying that he believed that the curse that God gave was not God's final word. He believed that God, through Eve, would provide a way for salvation. Powerful. By faith. How are you and I saved? It's not by anything we do. It's not by covering yourself. It's not by your own works. It's not by your uh, ingenuity. You see, E, Adam and Eve's way of covering themselves, that was their way of approaching God. But God says, it's not how you approach me. It's how I come to you and give you of myself. God's made the way possible. And that gift is to be accepted by faith. Tonight, I don't, I'm not going to turn there, but in Romans chapter 8, it talks about how all of the creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain. The older I get, the more weary I get of this world. We all, our bodies are getting more tired. We were created from dust, we're going to dust. But the beauty of all this is that this world is not all that there is. There's hope in Jesus Christ. There's hope that Jesus will turn all of this around. 